Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, if there ever was a good time to play at being a Christian, this is not it. Our society is coming apart at the seams, and it seems like we are the seams. Oh God, we pray, come to us today in power as your word is preached, as we read and hear your word together. Help me, God, to preach faithfully and fruitfully, effectively and powerfully. Grant that your spirit brings your words home to all of our hearts with great power. Edify these dear saints, expose and draw the lost to repentance and faith. Glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I warn you, I'm fairly bursting with what we're going to look at today. And if I, uh, rather than rush it, uh, if I don't finish, then I'll finish next week. I'm not going to rush this. It's too important to rush over. I want to start with a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer this one out loud, but I want to provoke thinking. So I hope you will all answer it in your hearts as if I were asking for an answer. With what do you associate strong emotion and desire Do you associate strong emotion and desire and displays and expressions of emotion and desire? Do you associate that with healthy doctrine or with unhealthy doctrine? Do you associate strong emotion and desire and expressions of strong emotion and desire with us or with them? Who do you see that applying to most serious question in your hearts? Well, hang on to your hats, and I just want to dive right into what the Word of God says. And let's all make sure that we drop our defenses, focus our attention, open our hearts and ears, and hear what God would say to us today. We'll focus on 1 Peter 2, verse 2, but look at uh, the entire context to understand it. So first we will see together, Roman numeral 1, God's command to desire. I'll read you verses 1 and 2. Peter writes, Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That certainly is a command. He says, long for the pure milk of the word. This is in Scripture, so this is God's command. The first, then, that being the case, I want to consider with you letter A, how remarkable this is. This command, this command to desire something from God to us. Let's consider how remarkable it is, letter A. And I'm going to consider that from two aspects. The first aspect, I just want to consider how remarkable it is in itself. How remarkable it is in itself that we have a command to desire something. And, and make no, uh, have no doubt about it, have no question about it. That's what this word is. It, that's what this command is. It, it is a command. It's in the imperative mood. Uh, it is something that God wants us to do. It's not addressed to the Holy Spirit. It's not addressed to God the Son. It's not addressed to the pastor particularly. It's addressed to all of us. It's a command to desire. And this word for desire is an intense word. It means to really want something. I mean, maybe your baby starts crying in in his crib at night and you think, well, I'm going to give him a couple of minutes and see if he just falls back asleep. And if you give him a couple, yeah, that never works. It it, it sometimes works, but mostly he just keeps crying and crying. Now, do you have to go and say, do you really, are you really hungry though? 
Are you, I mean, look at those cheeks. Are you really hungry, or couldn't you just sleep a few more? No, he, he desires milk. He wants it. He wants it now. He doesn't care how much sleep you've had. He doesn't care how much, how you, what you feel like or what you've got to do tomorrow. His stomach is craving food, and you're the one who has it, so you're the one who has to give it. So he lets you know the only way he can, the only way she can, which is to cry until what? Get up and give him something to eat. Give him a nappy. Did I hear give him a nappy? Now that, that, well, I guess that can work too, but you get up and give him what he needs. You give him the food that he's crying for because he desires it. There's no doubt about it. You don't have to talk him into it. You don't have to reason him into it. He knows he's hungry and he will settle for nothing other than what he craves. That's what God tells us to do. He tells us to crave. He tells us to yearn for, strongly to desire. Well, that's remarkable. What's remarkable about it? Well, at least three things are remarkable about it. First, it's remarkable because it is a command to our affections. It's a command to feel a certain way, to yearn a certain way, to put value on something, to want something. You don't normally think of that as something that you command. I mean, like I say, we, as I said last week, we joke about saying to somebody, cheer up, you know, as if just by telling them to cheer up, they're going to feel better, and that never works. And yet, here is a command addressed to our Emotions. I mean, you almost want to say, well, is that allowed? I mean, can you do that? Can, can you command someone's affections? Of course, to that, the answer is apparently. Because there it is, right there in Scripture, a command from God. Does he know what he's doing? I'm going to go with yes. He knows exactly what he's doing. He thinks it's perfectly fitting. He thinks it's perfectly necessary for him to tell us this, to make this command. And it's remarkable that it even has to be made because in a healthy person, hunger comes naturally. You don't have to reason someone into hungering. In a baby, in, in Peter's images of babies, and I remind you, he's not talking about immaturity, babies as opposed to grown-up people. He's talking about life. Babies as opposed to stillborns. Babies as opposed to the dead. This is babies, and babies naturally come by hunger. So it's kind of remarkable that he should have to tell us to hunger, and yet here he does. He tells us to yearn, tells us to desire, tells us to crave. This is, this is remarkable that he should command our affections like this and put us responsible for our affections like this. And, and in that remarkableness is, is really a sweet promise because we know our God is not commanding us to crave for something he's not willing to give us. This is not a, a miser teasing us and taunting us. It's something that he yearns to give us. It's something for our good. But the trouble may be that we may not yearn for it as we should. And so he commands us to yearn for it. It's remarkable in itself. It's remarkable in that it's a command of the affections. It's remarkable that even has to be made. Because normally hunger is just natural. And yet obviously it's something that does need to be commanded. And it's remarkable that God is calling us to come and eat our fill. That we will, when we hunger, He will feed us. When we knock, the door will be open. When we seek, we will find. So first, how remarkable it is in itself. Secondly, how remarkable it is, well, I mean to be candid, and let's, let's be candid, how remarkable this command is among us. Us, and by us I mean us here in this auditorium this subcategory of Christians, of people who profess Christian faith. Our group, our category of Christians, um, are people who highly value biblical truth. Amen? 
and rightly so. And we highly value doctrinal precision and doctrinal correctness, truth without admixture, admit, admixture of guile and error. This is what we prize, and we should. It's absolutely right to. We're known for that. What are we not commonly known for? Well, we're not commonly known for great intensity or emotion in our worship, in the style of our worship, and sometimes even in our own lives. We're not widely known as people of great intense feeling and affections in our faith, and and certainly not of expressions of feeling or emotion in our worship. We're not known for that. But is it biblical? So is it, here's some questions. These are not trick questions, but they're real questions. They'll sound like a trick, but it's not. Is it biblical to affirm that there's only one God? Oh, the hesitation worries me a little bit, but you know, you're wondering what I'm doing with you here, so the answer to that is yes. Is it biblical to affirm that the Bible teaches the Trinity? Is it biblical to affirm that salvation is by grace alone? Amen, absolutely. Is it biblical to expect to feel nothing towards God? to have no feelings and no affections about the truth of God? Is it biblical to hear about our Savior and His glory, about the Gospel and its wonders, to hear about God and His holiness and feel absolutely nothing about it, but to note it down as something to put in our portfolio? Is that biblical? Well, very good. See, there is nothing for you to worry about. That's exactly right. That's not biblical. You know that just from this verse. But I'll show you a great many beside desire, yearn for, crave, he says, the pure milk of the word. It's a command to our affections. We are not known for our affections. That's not a great thing. It's not a great thing that we're not known for how deeply we feel, and not just that we feel very intensely that people mustn't teach error, but that we love God. We rejoice in God. We praise God for his grace. It makes us happy. It makes us joyous. We're chastened by His holiness, by our own sins. We're humbled uh, to the dust by our own sins and the coldness of our hearts. But we're raised to the heavens by the glories of Christ and of the gospel and the great God we worship. So here's a challenge right there. It's remarkable. It's remarkable in itself, but it's remarkable in that it's addressed to us. God says to Copperfield Bible Church, yearn for the pure milk of the word. But letter B, at the same time, I want you to notice how remarkable it isn't. How remarkable it isn't. Well, what can I possibly mean by that? I just finished saying it. It is remarkable. Well, it isn't remarkable in that, let me just ask you a question. Does it sound like Peter thinks he's saying anything special to anyone special? Does it sound like... uh, He doesn't really expect anybody to do this, and he knows that most people won't, and he knows, in fact, that most people can't, and he doesn't particularly even mean that most people should. Does he sound that way? Does he qualify the command? You know, in chapter 5, he addresses something to the elders and something to the younger men. In chapter 3, he addresses wives and husbands. Is he addressing anyone particular here? Who's he talking to here? Who's his audience? Is Is it... Uh, A rare, select subset, a tiny subset of Christians? Or is he simply speaking to all Christians? Well, who is he addressing? Just look at verse 3. He tells us who he's addressing. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's the only requirement. That we should be people 
who yearn for the Word of God? Well, if, if we've tasted the kindness of the Lord, if we've experienced God's saving grace, not just as a theory, not just as something we are aware of, or even something that we think is true, but that we ourselves have embraced that truth. And t- You can't taste from a distance, can you? You can smell from a distance. Sometimes your smell tells you to keep your distance, right? Don't come close. But you can't taste from a distance. You can't taste from a distance. And so we must really have come to Christ. We must really know Christ for this to be true. And, and all we need for that, well, the verse says it as newborn babes. Does he mean that? Yeah, he, he means exactly that. He means newborn babes because we've been born again. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 3. I've given it all to you on the outline there. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. He has begotten us again, monergistically as we've studied. It's a thing He does. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who? All Christians. He's just addressing all Christians. This is the qualification. And you looked in at verse 23 and following, same chapter. For you have been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. So if there's any part of us who wants to say, well, I don't think this really applies to me, just make sure that you also say, I don't think being born again applies to me. Make sure you also say, I don't think being sprinkled with the blood of Christ applies to me. Just make sure you say, I don't think having a heavenly hope applies to me because it's all all one package. It's two people who've been born again, who believe in Christ, who've been sprinkled with His blood. It's to those people, and to all those people, He says, yearn for the Word of God. He doesn't say, unless you're not a very emotional person. He doesn't say, well, unless you don't like studying. He doesn't say, oh, unless it's really hard for you to do things like this. He simply says it to us. If we're born again, He tells us, then, newborn babes that you are, do what newborn babes do. Hunger but hunger for what you need, and that is the unadulterated Word of God. So in that way, I say it's not remarkable. This is not a subset of really committed Christians. This this great false teaching, the idea that there's two kinds of Christians, there's carnal Christians and spirit-led Christians, as if it's okay to go your whole life without giving any thought to Christ, reading the Word of God, caring at all about the things of God, but you're still Christian because... At some point, you came to the opinion that Jesus was raised from the dead. So don't worry about any of that. Uh, This is not a subcategory of Christians. All Christians are called to hunger for the Word of God. So this is clear in the context in, in Peter, isn't it? But I also want to say that it's clear in the larger biblical context. It's clear in the larger biblical context. I just want to give you a fairly small sampling Uh, verses, and they're all going to be from Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. I don't think I'll give you the verses. I'll just encourage you want to find them, go look. But uh, uh, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, I just want you to see how a particular saint, uh, certainly David in the first case, possibly David in the second, a saint in the Old Testament, how he felt about the Word of God. Did, Did you hear me? How he felt about the Word of God. Now, I want you to make sure that you you have this very clear. Remember who he is and when did he live. Oh, here's here's a bonus question. Anyone have any idea around what time King David lived? 
Ooh, yeah, if there was a prize, go right there. About 1000 BC. Now, is this before or after Christmas? <laughs> before or after the birth of Christ? Oh, well, that's the BC part, right? <laughs> kind of a giveaway. Christ had not been born. Now listen, think about this. Christ had not been born. He had not lived and fulfilled the law. He had not suffered and died on the cross. He'd not been buried. He'd not been raised. He'd not ascended to the right hand of the Father. He had not received the gift of the Holy Spirit and poured Him out on His church. His permanent indwelling, a gift to everyone in the new covenant. None of these things had happened. In fact, at this time, I'm just going to say, as a wild number, He probably only had, what, about a, a quarter of the Bible, if that? I mean, you can say with confidence he, he didn't have the magnificent book of Isaiah. He didn't have Jeremiah. He didn't have Ezekiel. But he didn't have Matthew. He didn't have Romans. He didn't have John. He didn't have Revelation. He didn't have any of those things. He didn't have those spiritual benefits. And when he held his Bible, it would have been a much, much smaller. It would have been a scroll, of course, but it would have been a much, much smaller work than you and I have. He had so much less. And yet... And yet, look what this brother in the faith said, lacking all the rich privileges and blessings you and I have. Here's how he felt about the law, about the word of God. And all these words, precepts, testimonies, law, word, they all just refer to the revealed word of God. So from Psalm 19, the precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. Is that an affection? Oh, but he labored under the law. Okay, but at that time still, the word of God gave joy to his heart. And he just knew of Christ and his work in outline form as prophecy. And yet the word of God was right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. And of God's words, he says, they are more desirable than gold. I want them more than I want to have a bunch of gold. That's the affections. That's what his value system. That's his hierarchy of values. Gold, the words of God. Much more desirable, he says. Interestingly, the Hebrew word there is the same word used of Eve's desire. She looks at the fruit and she thinks it's very desirable. She really wants it, clearly, because she reaches out and gets it and gives up everything in the getting. But... Oh, he says, no, no, it's God's word that's truly desirable. And it doesn't kill, it gives life. Psalm 119, listen. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. And again, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. And again, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Now, notice... Why is he going to memorize God's Word? Because he has to. Because his parents make him. Because that's what a good believer does. No, he does it because he delights in them. He wants them. He wants to take them with him wherever he goes. Why? Because he loves them. Because he cherishes them. Because he values them. Because he delights in them. I think of my wife often. Why do I think of my wife often? Because I have to. So a good parent, what a good husband does. Well, you wouldn't know if I did or not but I do. Why? Hmm. Because I love her. And why does, why does the believer, why does he think about God's words? Because he delights in them and he doesn't forget them because he delights in them. 
And listen to this, verse 20. My soul is crushed with longing for your judgments at all times. What do you think? How do you feel when you hear those words? My soul is crushed with longing for your judgment at all times. Do you think to yourself, I know exactly what he's talking about? Or do you think, I have no idea what he's talking about. I have never felt that in my life. Only thing that gets me to open my Bible is when my parents make me. Or the preacher says, and frankly, even when the preacher says, turn to a verse, I don't because I don't know where Jeremiah is. I don't know where Isaiah is. I've been a Christian, I'm sure, for 20 years, but I've never actually read the Bible. Is why, you know, I don't have to, do I? I just have to believe a couple of things and I'm in, right? But I don't actually want. I'm not crushed with longing. I don't know what that's about. But I think every born-again Christian can say, I know exactly what's up. I remember very vividly February 11, 1973, the afternoon, the morning, I'd gone to church and I'd, I'd repented and believed in Jesus and I'd pled with him to be my Lord. I called on the name of the Lord. And I went home and I had that Bible and I had opened that Bible before and it was dull, dead, and dusty. Anything I read in it, I only read because I had to. Or I wanted to well, I wanted to make fun of it as much as often as not. And I swear, it's like someone came in while I was gone, stole that Bible, and replaced it with a Bible that was electric. It was full of life. It was full of everything. And I literally wanted to devour it. I just wanted to get everything that was in there in here. Now, did anyone talk me into that? Did anyone reason me into that? Did I, had I had a class in bibliology? But how many Christians could, cause, could quote 15 verses about the inspiration of Scripture but don't know what it's like to yearn or have forgotten what it's like to yearn or have accepted that it's not normal Christian living to be crushed with longing for God's Word? And yet he says it here, not as a remarkable thing, but it's what a believer feels towards God's Word. My soul is crushed with longing for your judgments at all times, he says. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. I delight in them, so when I need advice, I go to them. Literally, the Hebrew text says they are the men of my counsel. They're, they're, they're the men. They're, they're the, the committee <laughs> that advises me. My committee is Scripture, he says. Uh, verse 35, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Behold, I long for your, your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. You give me life when you give me your word. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Uh, your statutes have become my songs in the house of my sojourning. My eyes fail with longing for your word, saying, when will you comfort me? When will you show what your word means to me and make it real and personal to me so that I may be comforted? If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Hard times, distressing times, what got him through it? God's word being his delight, giving him joy when everything around him gave him pain. Uh, Again, he says, 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Again, why? Because someone told him he had to? Because it, it was his duty? No, because he loved it. Because he loved it. And so he meditated in it day and night. It grew from love. How sweet is your word to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, even above fine gold. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. My eyes eagerly greet the night watches, that I may muse on your word. (laughs) So he's saying he's glad when he wakes up in the night, because, oh, this is another time to think about God's word. And I'm not surprised if many of us, most of the time we wake up in the night, we think, oh, how can I get back to sleep? Count sheep. Count, count new taxes. Well, was a little poli- might have been a little political. Um, sorry. But uh, count something that there's a lot of, in other words. Uh, no, but you know, what, what is he saying? Well, when he wakes up, he realizes, oh, here's, here's a time that is quiet. Nobody's bothering me. Nobody needs anything from me. I can just spend whatever time I've got thinking about God's word. And many of us would have to think, well, I couldn't possibly do that because I've got nothing to think about. I haven't taken the trouble to put anything here. It's all here. It's not here. I would have to turn my light on and find my Bible and and open it and try to think of something. But no, he has it in his heart and he wakes up and he thinks about it. He meditates on it. He goes over it. Uh, He's glad of the opportunity because why? Because he loves it. He loves the opportunity. And finally, I rejoice at your word as one who finds much spoil. Well now, Is there a theme there? (laughs) Yes, there certainly is a theme there. And I I just would remind you, this is somebody who did not have even the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that if you're a Christian, you have. And if I'm a Christian, I have. The Spirit didn't even permanently indwell him. And he didn't even have all of the wonders of Scripture and all the fulfillments of prophecy that we have. And yet, he so loved God and said out loud and lived from love and delight. So I have a, a, a very serious question for you I want you to think about as if it were just you and I sitting and talking. How does that make you feel? What do you feel as, as I'm reading those? As you hear these scriptures, as you hear this witness from the Word of God, how does that, 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 how does that leave you feeling? I, I confess to you as I read them, I feel stung. I feel chastened. I feel humbled. I feel admonished. I also feel encouraged and instructed and directed not to accept that normal living is living with a cold, bloodless, loveless, unfeeling heart, but that God calls us to love Him. And God saves us and commands our affections as well as our opinions. And I am humbled and led to strive for more in my spiritual life and never to be content to have God's word meaning something to me in terms of theory, but not in terms of what it actually does to me, of what the, the impact of it on my affections. So let's reflect then, let her see on how this challenges us. How this challenges us, and as we begin reflecting together on how this challenges us, I want to take you back to the first sermon in this series and remember, what is it that faith does for us? What does faith do with God's truth for us? Well, the answer to that is in what verse? Hebrews. Oh dear. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
So what faith does, since faith is always about the word of God, faith takes the truth of God's word and all of the hopes and promises and puts those in my hands. Though I don't have them yet, faith puts them in my hands. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And faith is the conviction of things not seen. Though I don't see Jesus, as Peter says, nonetheless, in chapter 1, even though we don't see him, but we believe in him, so we rejoice. Because that's what faith does. Faith reveals Jesus to me. I don't see him with my eyes of flesh, but I see him with the eyes of faith and the word of God. That's what faith does for us. It, it, it takes the word of God and takes all those sweet promises and all those wondrous blessings and puts them in my hand. It's the substance of things hoped for. And it also takes all of those glorious truths that I don't see with the naked eye, but gives me a conviction of their truth. It's the conviction of the things not seen. And so that is why it affects not just things I think, but all of me. Not just my opinions, but my affections. Do you follow me? Because Christianity is not just a philosophy. Christianity is not just a series of answers to questions. Christianity is not just a database or even a set of doctrines. Now notice I said just. Christianity does rule philosophy. It does give us things to think. It is a database. It's just not just those things. Because the new birth in Christ does not just recategorize me. Are you hearing me? It doesn't just take me from this column and put me in that column, but I feel no effect of it. it doesn't just, it's not just on paper. What is the new birth? It transforms what? Me. It transforms you. It doesn't just transform our opinions about certain things, though that does come. It doesn't just transform the way we would answer certain questions, although that comes. It transforms me. Well, what part of me? All of me. Well, not just my opinions? No, not just my opinions. My affections. Well, what are affections? They're what I treasure, what I yearn for, what's most important to me. When I'm lost, my free will freely chases after my affections as a lost man. What are my affections as a lost man? Sin, basically. Being my own God. Doing what I want because I want to. And what does the new birth do? It gives me a new heart and thus transforms my affections. So the things that excited me yesterday don't excite me the same way today. And the things that were death to me yesterday are life to me today. Are you following me? It's not just theoretical. We are transformed. We are born again. And so God's word becomes life and power to us, to our affections, because our affections are transformed. That's what the new birth brings. So this challenges us. On, on one hand, I mean, just to be the most basic, it, it challenges us to, to ask the basic question, well, am I born again? I thought I was born again because I had arrived at the opinion that Jesus rose from the dead, and I had arrived at the opinion that uh, I'm a sinner, and I had arrived at a couple of other opinions, and I was told that's all I needed to do, and now I'm in. I checked those boxes, but what you're talking about today, I'm a total stranger to. I only open the Bible. I only come to church because my husband expects me to, or my wife expects me to, or my, parent, my children make me do it. I only open the Bible when my, my wife does, you know, or my husband does to look over there, or when my parents say, read this at the, at the family reading. I don't read it. I don't 
open it because I long for it. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't yearn for it. I, I don't thirst and hunger and pain and all that stuff that you just read. I mean, that sounds like crazy talk to me. And it troubles me because you're saying that this is what the new heart is. This is what you're saying the new nature is. And I don't know what any of those things are. Well, then that's to be taken very, very seriously if that's the truth. Robert Layton said a couple of centuries ago, surely they that are not born again, surely they that are not born again shall one day wish they had never been born. And that's the truth. As people have said, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. And I would add, at the most. At the most, if the Lord doesn't come for us first. So if that is you, then what I am saying to you is no, don't, don't, I'm not saying collapse in despair, but on the other hand, I'm also saying don't just say, well, that was weird. I could, have, I could have not gone to church that day and been happier. Don't do that. It's serious. If this is you, then I would urge you go to Jesus. You go running to Jesus with that. You go running to Jesus and you say, Here, I, I thought all this time I was a Christian. I'm realizing that I'm not sure I ever was. I don't think I ever was. But I want you. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. I want to be yours. I want you to be mine. You do that. You go running to Jesus with that. And then again, maybe you listen to this and and you say, I do know what that is. I have had what that is. Honestly, it's more of a memory than a regular experience. It's not something I look at as being normal. And so, I would, I would ask then, is it possible that you have settled for something less than being what the New Testament describes as a Christian? Have you, have you written for yourself an expectation? Well, I don't expect God's Word to move my feeling. I don't expect to feel anything about God. Uh, this is not, uh, John Piper calls this sort of thing spiritual fatalism. And I don't, I, I am not on board with everything John Piper teaches, but boy, when he's good, he's very, very good. And, and he has a very good point about this. Spiritual fatalism. In other words, oh well, I just never feel anything about God or His Word or His truths and they just leave me as cold as a tub of bluebell ice cream and not half as yummy. They do nothing for me. Oh well, I guess that's just not me. No, don't do that. This verse of Scripture will not let you and me do that. And for you, the same solution is the same solution I just said for the unbeliever. What's that? Remind me. Go to Jesus with it. Go to Jesus with it. Don't settle. Go to Him with it. This is one of the things that that is wondrous about the Psalms. Nothing stops David from turning to God. If, If he's rejoicing and things have gone wonderfully well, he goes to God with that. If he's feeling distant and dead and and despairing, he goes to God with that. Whatever it is, he goes to God with it. I think there's a lesson there, you know. I'm not real bright, but I, I take a lesson from that. That wherever I am, I should go to God with that. So, who would you say in, in history is, is the picture of people who at the same time had the deepest grasp of doctrine, but also the deepest devotion and affection to God? Surely you'd say, if you knew church history, the Puritans and the Reformers. 
John Calvin, Martin Luther, men of deep devotion, uh, Knox and, and others, deep, men of deep devotion. The Puritans could write, I mean, they just, oh, their sermons would, would knock you flat, and, and uh, just the titles would knock you flat. Some of their titles take about half of one of my sermons just to read. And, and they knew Scripture, they bled Scripture, it was all over their souls. But when you look at their, their prayers and how they speak of and sing, we just sang some from Watts. They are often lamenting the coldness of their heart. They're often lamenting how little their love for God is and how shallow their devotion is, often. And you look at them and you think, I would not have said that. I would not have thought that. You know why you and I would not have thought that? Because of those confessions. Because they went to God with their coldness and their shallowness and the weakness of their devotion and the the shameful, pitiable uh, uh, thinness of their response to God's grace. And they went to God and they begged. They, they asked forgiveness. They confessed openly. They sang. They prayed that God would light up their hearts with fire of, of affection and love and devotion. They, they did not rest. Well, why didn't they rest? Well, I, they must have had this verse in their Bible too. Right? The verse that says, long for, as newborn babes yearn for, long for, crave. And they looked at it and they said, it's not normal that I'm not longing for God's word. Oh God, forgive me for my lack of, of craving, my lack of affection. Oh God, warm my heart. I should. Look at how deep my need is. Look how great your glory is. Oh God, how can I be wandering and, and, and staggering in this coldness and weakness? Oh God. And in the praying, their hearts warmed, you see. And because they had not decided that, oh well, Our group doesn't feel things. Our group doesn't feel emotion. It doesn't express emotion. That's just the way it is. Because they had verses like this bugging them and showing them otherwise, you see. And we have verses like that bugging us and showing us otherwise too. And if anyone's thought is, oh, well, you know, I realize how far I am. I'm just going to despair and give up. Well, that's Satan. And that's not where I'm going with this, certainly. You certainly don't hear that in in what I'm preaching to you. What do I say? If you see this to yourself and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then go to Jesus with it. If you don't see it in yourself and you realize you're not a believer, go to Jesus with it. And again, I I say, you know, somebody could listen to my preaching and think, you know, it just seems like you just think the answer to everything is go to Jesus. To which I would respond, thank you, amen, exactly. You have heard me correctly fundamentally that is always the absolute bottom line answer we need to go to Jesus and Jesus says come so doesn't that work out well for us praise God so now let's talk about uh, letter two see how far we get Roman Roman numeral two our ability to desire so I take it that when he urges us to desire he must think we're able to desire How can that be? (laughs) Roman numeral two, our ability to desire. It's reason, letter A. So in other words, how can we be commanded? Why can he command us to feel affection, to to yearn for God's word? Why can he do this? Well, again, go back to chapter one and verse three. He's speaking to people on whom God has set his love from eternity, foreknowledge. Remember, that's not, not God knowing things about people, but God setting his love on us. Sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
uh, submitting to Christ and being sprinkled with his blood, so Christians. And then in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how can he tell you, how can he tell me we must desire the Word of God and think that there's any way that we can because we've been born again? Because, and for no other reason than because we've been born again. And again, verses 23 through 25 For you have been born again, you have been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. In verse 25, this is the word which was proclaimed to you as good news. And then chapter 2, verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Couple that with with verse 2, as newborn babes if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So, in short, the reason why he can say to us, feel this, yearn for the Word of God, is because he is talking to people who have been born again. Who is he not saying this to? He's not saying it to the lost. Because you can't talk a dead person into having an appetite. Don't even try. It can't be done. I mean, that's one of the signs of death, you know. I I told you years ago this joke public service announcement saying, you know, X tens of thousands die every minute. That might you might have been one of them. Make sure you know the warning signs of death, you know. And so, how to know if you're dead? And so, one of the things to tell if you're dead is you have absolutely no appetite whatsoever. And the last sign is you've got coins on your eyelids. But uh, so, if this all happens, you should write in for the government book. So I'm dead now. What? Well, this is one of the warning signs of death. No sign, and there's no point telling dead people to yearn for the Word of God. There's no point telling spiritually dead people that they should yearn for the pure Word of God. That's the last thing they want. They want twisted Scripture. They want Scripture that tells them how they can make God get what they want out of life. But they don't want real Scripture. They don't want unadulterated Scripture. You can't hector a dead person into wanting the Word of God. You can't badger a dead person into wanting and desiring the Word of God. You can't shame a dead person into desiring the Word of God. For that matter, you can't reason a dead person. You can't explain a dead person into uh, wanting the Word of God or prove to him unnecessary. You can do those things, but it won't have any effect because his trouble is not any of those things. His trouble is that he's dead. His heart is dead. His affections are the affections of a person dead to God. And you can't lead a dead person to desiring God by your silent witness. They need to hear the word of God and they need the spirit of God to give them new life. That is why we must be born again. We need to stop being dead people and only God can do that for us. And once we're not dead, then we can be urged, exhorted, admonished, commanded to yearn for the word of God. So it's lost on dead people. These words are of no use to dead people. But these words are light and life to living people. Because what is, what is, what underlines this command to yearn for the pure milk of the word? Well, as I've said, what underlines it for one thing is the, the, the premise that the people he's talking to are born again. But what, what underlies it in God? That God wants us to desire his, his word. He wants us to come to him 
yearning and craving for his word. And he will feed us when we come to him that way. He will grant us his word. What a horrible thing it would be if we had a Bible that told us that we should yearn for God's word, but in, on God's part, his attitude was, uh, it's not really for all of you. It's just for some of you. There's just a subset that I'm interested in giving my word to. You can all come, but I'm only going to give it to some. It's not a guaranteed thing. Oh, but it is. If he's commanding us, then it is a guaranteed thing. The, the, the love and the generosity of God. Imagine me back on my knees. Uh, in, literally, I do remember. On my knees by my bed with a Bible open in front of me. Just wishing that I could absorb that whole thing. Just devour that whole thing. It would become life and joy and hope and light to me. But suppose that on God's part he said, you know, no, not you. <laughs> not, are you serious? Do you remember your blasphemies? Do you remember those snotty, horrible things you said about the gospel? Do you remember all the Christians you tried to turn away from Jesus? Your foul mouth? and To say nothing of the ugliness of your heart, the sewage of your heart, the things you've done to my creation. You think I'm going to give you my word? A heartbreaker that would have been, right? No, but that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died for people just like that. He came into the world to save sinners. How bad sinners? Bad sinners. <laughs> bad sinners because that's a sinner. He came to save sinners. And so when he saves a sinner, listen, brother, sister, when he saves a sinner, he throws open the treasury. <laughs> he throws open the doors. And through those doors, you see piles and piles of gold and silver and jewels, except it's really even better than all that. And it's all yours. And what's the simple thing he says to you and me? Desire it. Desire it. Yearn for it. Long for it. Because it's yours. I give it to you. And so that's the good news behind this. The reason why God urges you, Christian sister, Christian brother, and me, to yearn for his word is because he wants us to have it. He's given it to us. It's ours. Just yearn for it. Just yearn for it. But I do want to talk about something. I'm just going to push this in here because there's no other place for it in, in the way I've done my notes, but I do want to talk about it. Notice that what he says here in verse 2. Long for the pure milk of the word. Now, I, I would not have translated the word pure because it's a very interesting word. It is the word adolos. Now that ah just means without. Like we say amoral, somebody without morals, right? With me so far? He, he says, I'm going to Englishize it. He says adolos. Okay, and then your question becomes, what's dolos? Well, dolos is in verse 1, where he says, laying aside all malice and all deceit. There's the word dolos. I'm to put aside dolos and long for the adolos word, milk of the word. Okay, thanks, Pastor. It's real helpful. Let me explain what that means. Dolos, this vice dolos, is deceptiveness. It, it means to bait somebody. It means particularly to deceive someone so as to take advantage. Maybe tell him what he wants to hear. Tell him a little bit of what he wants to hear so that you can have your way with him. It's, it's deceptive. It's guile. There's another, that's a good translation for the word guile. Guile, like the serpent had in, in Eden, tells her certain things that she wants to hear to get her to turn away from the Lord. He says, you put that away from you. 
And instead, you long for the adolos milk of the word. So what does that mean? The guileless milk of the word. That word adolos was used for uh, products that were unadulterated, literally. Uh, Somebody wanting to make sure that he got unadulterated wheat, not mixed with barley, you see, or unadulterated wine, not watered down with a bunch of water. Are you following me? Just the pure thing. I, I, I ordered wheat and I just want wheat. I ordered barley, I want barley. I ordered wine, I want wine. Don't mix it with stuff. And so, what's the application? He's calling us to yearn for God's word unadulterated. So, now so many people who think that they're Christians, it's not even a priority to find a Bible teaching church. That's not even a big thing to them. Style of music's everything. Decor, feel of worship, coffee bar, you know, all these things. They're the really, I'm not even joking, these, they're the really, oh, whether they have this or that group already going so I don't have to do anything and uh, you can give me everything that I want. You know, they want a, they want a, a, a Walmart in a church. In the Bible teaching, that's really not their priority. But others, they go to a church and yeah, they talk about the Bible all the time, but it's false doctrine. It's, it's not the pure teaching of the word. It's only certain things the things that draw people in, not the sorts of things people don't want to hear. It's not the whole counsel of God because it's not that important to them to have the unadulterated word. And yet, what does God call us to? He calls us to desire the unadulterated word. I just want the word. I just want the word. Have you ever been in a service and just thought that? Almost wanted to stand up and say that? I have. Not, not proudly, not happily. I tell you, God's, God knows my heart. I go into a church anywhere, I'm wanting to just love being there. I'm just wanting to love the worship and love the preaching of the word, and I just want to go away happy. God is my witness, that's what I want. But, you know, sometimes, so many times, I've ended up just wanting to stand up and say, I just want the word. Would you just give me the word? Can you just crack that Bible open for a few minutes and tell me what it says? Tell me the truth about what it says. That's what I need. Oh, is, is that our spirit? That's what Peter says. Yong, long for, I said yong, I'm combining yearn and long. Long for, yearn for the unadulterated milk of the word. So that's the reason. The reason he can say that to us is because we've been born again. We've been regenerated. We have new natures. We have a new heart that desires new things. And so we have the capacity to do that. We have the capacity. It would be cruel to tell a dead person to do something he can't. He lacks the capacity. But God is telling us to do something that he's given us the capacity. It was one of Augustine's prayer. Give me what you command and then command what you want. And indeed he does here. He's given us new hearts. And he tells us to, with those new hearts, yearn for the milk of the word, the pure milk of the word. That's the reason. Letter B, it's reality. Well, the reality is that this is indeed a command. He orders us to do this with the authority of God. Who is he? What does verse 1 say? Peter and, what's that word? Apostle. What does that mean? means he's a spokesman for Christ. He's an authorized, fully authorized spokesman for Christ. He is Christ's mouth. He's speaking Christ's words to us. And with Christ's mouth, he says to us, 
long for the pure milk of the word. So how does he present it then? Let me, there's a real question. You can give me yes or no. Not a trick question. Does he present this as an optional thing? You can do it or not. doesn't really matter. No, certainly not. Does he present it as something that is desirable, but rare and not essential? No, not at all. Does he present it as a duty like any other command of the faith? Yes. I know we don't like the word duty, but when the Bible commands us to uh, believe in the Lord Jesus, God makes that our duty. When the Bible commands husbands to love their wives, wives to submit to their husbands, parents to honor children to honor their parents, parents to bring up their children. These are all commands. These are all duties. This is no less of a duty. Maybe you say, well, I'm really good at the love your wife part. Well, praise the Lord. Glory to God. I wonder if your wife would say that, but that's a great thing. How about this one, though? Because it's no less a duty. You say, oh, the, the Bible tells me to test everything, test the spirits. I'm really discerning about doctrine. Fantastic. That is a command. So is this. You desire God's word because this is no less a command than that. Now, seriously, and, and this is a serious question. I, I'm, this could get controversial, but I'm, I'm going to steer around that. I, it's my intention. Suppose, serious question, suppose suddenly in, in our setting today, one day suddenly you, you, you suddenly lost your sense of taste. Suddenly you just, you can't taste food at all. What's the first thing that you would think today? You would think, COVID. Do I have COVID? Because that is one of, the, one of the signs of COVID. You would think, oh, this is what happens when you have COVID. You lose your, your sense of taste. And now, how would, how would most people feel if they thought that? They'd, they'd feel concerned. They'd, they'd have feelings about it. They'd feel concerned, kind of wonder, well, what, what, which COVID am I about to get? Am I about to, to get the kind of COVID that has you feeling down for a couple of days or the one that ends you up in the hospital because people seem to get it very differently? But I really don't want either one. And so I'm kind of concerned now that, that that's the track apparently I'm on. And, and what would you do? I know answers would differ here, but, but many would say, well, I would seek care. You know, I would, I would start watching myself and I would start, you know, maybe taking some things that I've been told will help me or whatever, but I'm concerned now because I know I've got something to be concerned about. You, you wouldn't just blow it off and say, oh, well, uh, there's, there's the next thing that happened. <laughs> I lost my taste. Oh, boy. So what? No, nowadays I don't think we'd say so what. So now let's bring that to what we're talking about. Suppose we were to hear this and realize, I have no taste for the Word of God. I have no desire for the Word of God. Or, I don't have much. I don't have what I believe I should. I don't believe I have what Peter's talking about. I remember having it, but, but I've kind of gotten away from that. So what I'm saying then is that's the case, then that, that is something to be concerned about and take seriously and not just blow off and not forget as soon as you walk out of the doors of this building and do nothing about it. We should not settle for less in ourselves. We should realize this is part of the normal Christian living God calls me to. And instead of putting our efforts into, you know, into shooting the messenger, messenger or into explaining, you know, why it's really okay for me not to have this desire, we should take it seriously and we should look for what God's remedies are. We should go to God with it and we should pursue it. Knowing we've got a gracious and a patient, a long-suffering God, praise God. A gracious, long-suffering, patient Father who's already paid for all our sins if we're his children in Christ. And go to him and saying, I want to grow in this. 
I, want to, I don't want to settle for this. I don't want to just decide, oh, well, I'm that one who doesn't have a sense of smell or taste when it comes to God's word. I want to experience that same yearning because setting the goal of a healthy appetite obviously is something God wants for each of his children because this is a command that God gives for each of his children. So I'm bringing out my pen and that can only mean one thing. I'm going to stop here. And then next week, Lord willing, I'm going to talk about the practical side of this. I'm going to talk about, and so you, I urge you to be thinking about, what are the enemies to this desire? What in a Christian... Now, we obviously know the big one is if you're not born again, you're not going to have that desire. But in a Christian, remember, he's giving this command, so evidently we need to hear it, right? Do you follow me? I mean, if it just was automatic and just happened all by itself, I wouldn't need to be commanded, would I? So, what is it that is an enemy to this? What sorts of things would kill that desire and make it less likely for me to have that appetite? And what am I being called to do that will heighten that desire and encourage that desire and help help grow in me the desire for the pure milk of God's word? Lord willing, this is what we'll look at next week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, our word, your word, and how poignantly and powerfully and how pointedly it speaks to us. Now I pray for the men and women, the children who've listened to this and who have been forced to, to think and realize I have never felt that desire. I, I, don't, I don't desire the word of God. It's not something I do because I want to, yearn to, love knowing God through his word. I pray for that person that you will trouble that person with that realization so much that he, she comes straight to you and brings it to you in repentance and faith, lays himself, herself at your feet, finds the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ for all who come to the Father through him. And for any believer who's been convicted and says, I realize I'm too much of a stranger to that, oh Father, thank you for that blessing. How, how kind of you to bring that to our attention. How gracious of you so gently to show us here's an area of your health that you need to see to. Thank you for your patience and your love, Father, and help us indeed to see to that earnestly. And I pray for your Spirit's ministry to open the eyes of each of us here to see in a personal way what your word says to each of us and help us to apply it. And for all who know that appetite is a regular thing, praise you for your kindness and your graciousness. Make that in our congregation the rule rather than the exception. Make us a people who are known truthfully and for good reason for our deep love for you and our deep hunger for the truths of your word to learn and grow by them. In Jesus' name, amen.